0: The title of this message is He has done just as he said he would. And the subject of that sentence is the Lord. The Lord has done just as he said he would do. Now that should not be a surprise, right? I mean, we know from the rest of our Bibles that God always keeps his what? Promises. He is faithful. In that way, praise his name. But it might be a surprise to find out who says those words in today's chapter. It might be a very unlikely person to you and me to to be saying, he has done just as he said he would. And it may not be very surprising that the Lord has done just as he said he would, but it's still pretty scary. Because he said, because of what he said, He would do. He said that he would burn down his own beloved city. Or at least see that it was burnt down. And all of its citizens carried off into captivity. We've reached one of the lowest points in the whole story of the Old Testament. The sack of Jerusalem. And what came next. What I want to do today is to read through three chapters of God's holy word... The next six chapters basically tell the story in historical order of how Jerusalem fell and the chaos that followed, the aftermath. We'll take three chapters this week, 39, 40, 41, and Lord willing, we'll take the next three chapters together next Sunday, 42, 43, 44. And while I want us to go slowly together enough to explain features of the story, I'm going to save most of the application for four brief summary points at the end. So, as I'm reading, and we're looking at this story. I want you to be thinking to yourself, how does this apply to my life today? If the Lord has done just as He said He would, and He's the same God today as He was then, and I belong to Him, then what difference does this story make for my life this week? Do you remember back in chapter 1? When the Lord asked the young prophet Jeremiah what he saw, and the young prophet Jeremiah said, I see a boiling pot. Do you remember that? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. Do you remember that, his vision of the boiling pot? It's like this great big pot on the stove, right? And it's got chili in it, or, or spaghetti, or maybe just cooking oil, it's just Bubbling away, on the, on the stove, or right over the fire, really, right? But it's tilting. Oh, oh, that pot's going to pour out, and just, it's, it's going to pour out. Do you remember what the Lord said that meant, chapter 1? He said this, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come, he says this, and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all their surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Do you remember that? That day is now here. The scalding will begin. It's been 40 years since Jeremiah saw that pot bubbling over, tilting. And now it's going to be poured out. Look at Jeremiah chapter 39 verse 1. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then, all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. (coughs) Nego, <coughs> excuse me, Nergal, Sherazar of Samgar, Nebo, Sarskim, a, a chief officer, Nergal, Sherizer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. The boiling pot has been poured out. Nebuchadnezzar has sent his army a few times against Judah over the years. They've been effectively ruling Judah now for more than a decade. The overlord, the great kingdom that this is... a like a vassal kingdom of. Nebuchadnezzar has drawn off the cream of the crop into exile, including King Jehoiachin and his mom. And he's put King Zedekiah on the throne in Jerusalem, but Zedekiah has rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar won't stand for that. He's been patient, but now he's going to take down the city and drag its residents off into exile in Babylon. Babylon. Can you imagine what this was like, living inside the city? The siege has gone on for about 18 months, if you do the math here. Nobody gets in or out. The whole army is camped outside of Jerusalem. From January 588 B.C. in verse 1 to July 18th, 586 B.C. in verse 2. We can pinpoint the date. It's the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's 11th year. That's July 18th, 586 B.C. They broke through. And just like Yahweh said back in chapter 1, they set up their thrones in the gates of the city. And they took total control. Zedekiah knew this was about to happen and so he had an escape route planned. He makes a run for it. Look at verse 4. When Zedekiah king of Judah and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. It's like a movie, right? See if they can get away and then mount a counterinsurgency to come back and take their city back. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes. And bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Lord said this was going to happen too. We saw it in chapter 21 verse 7. Chapter 34 verse 3. Chapter 38 verses 14 through 23 just last week. The Lord said that Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar with his own eyes. And also not die of violence. So the last thing that Zedekiah ever saw was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar killing his sons. But then he didn't die himself. He was taken off to Babylon blind. And then they burnt his city. Verse 8 The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. What a short sentence to describe what an incomprehensibly awful thing that was for the people of Jerusalem. To see how Jeremiah felt about it, read the book of Lamentations. Have you read Lamentations recently? It starts, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. That's beautiful. It's as beautiful as it is sad. Five chapters like that, full of sorrow and tears. These walls have been for them safety and security and shalom. Shalom. They've now been broken down. The Babylonians have pulled them down. The city is no more. Just like the Lord said would happen. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 15. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 51. Chapter 37, verses 1 through 10. And then the exile. Verse 9. Nabuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. Exile has occurred. Just like he said, the streets are empty. It's like a post apocalyptic world for them. The dystopian future has arrived. The majority have gone. Just a few scattered people here and there are left. Mostly the poor, who didn't seem to be much of a threat. Verse 10. But but Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time he gave them vineyards and fields. Isn't that interesting? These folks who too often were mistreated by their Jewish kinsmen are now given vineyards and fields by the pagans. The Lord moves in mysterious ways his justice to perform. And it's not just the poor who are surprisingly well-treated. Jeremiah is too. Look at verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, 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 a chief officer, Nergal, Sharizer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. You wonder how Nebuchadnezzar knew about Jeremiah, right? I guess word travels fast. And Nebuchadnezzar probably liked what he thought Jeremiah's message was, right? Seemed pretty pro-Babylon. Babylon's going to win. Give up. Judah's going to lose. Surrender. Settle down, exiles, and seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. That's Jeremiah 29, right before our famous verse, verse 11. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I like this guy. I like what he has to say. So Babylon takes better care of the prophet Jeremiah than did the kings of Judah. Jeremiah's feet are no longer in the mud, where Zedekiah left them to die. He isn't even under house arrest in the courtyard of the guard. He's placed in the custody and care of the newly appointed governor, Gedaliah, who is basically a good man from a good family. How weird is that? So that's where Zedekiah is, and that's where Jeremiah is. Where is Ebed-Melech? Whatever happened to that African guy who rescued Jeremiah from the cistern? Here's where we find out the rest of his story. Verse 15. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes, but I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Friends, those are the most hope-filled words in these three chapters. A little beam of light in a dark room. Ebed-Melech is saved. The rescuer is rescued. And not because he earned it. It doesn't say that he somehow earned his way to this salvation. It says that he's rescued because he trusted in the Lord. He put his faith in him. That's where his courage came from, so to speak. To to speak to those uh, those uncomfortable words to the king, Ebed Melech put his confidence in the Lord. He was like the tree in chapter seventeen. Remember that tree, our, our last memory verse before this one. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. He will be like a tree planted what by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. That was Abed Melech. He was a tree, flourishing because of his faith. But these last three verses of chapter 39 are also haunting verses because the Lord says that the destruction is imminent and it is the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. Look again at verse 16. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. In other words, he's going to do what he said he would do. And now he has. From my perspective, it would be fine to end the book right here. City's destroyed. Zedekiah is blind. Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech are safe. Close the book. But that's not what Jeremiah did. It's not what the Lord did either. He has more for us to see. So we turn the page to chapter 40 and see what happened next. And in a word, it is... Chaos. More chaos, more judgment. Look at verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile in Babylon. To Babylon. Oops. <laughs> Wait, what? Nebuchadnezzar had said to look after Jerusalem, but he has somehow gotten swept up and re-arrested with the folks who are being shipped off to Babylon. And that was probably okay with Jeremiah because he knows what he said in chapter 29. But Nebuzaradan is under strict orders to take care of him. So when he finds Jeremiah, he pulls him out of the lineup and he says something completely amazing to him. Look at verse two. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, Listen to this. The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. Did you see who said those words? You see who said the words of, of the title of the sermon for today? He has done just as he said he would. It was not the prophet. It was the pagan. Nebuzaradan said to Jeremiah, Yahweh your God poured out the boiling pot on Jerusalem. And it's because you folks are such sinners. Can you imagine the look on Jeremiah's face? <laughs> In my mind he's smiling, and he's shaking his head. He, he, he can't believe what he's hearing here. That's what I've been trying to say for 40 years, right? That's been my message. For 40 years, Jeremiah's been basically alone and just about the only person saying this publicly. And now it's actually the pagan who just conquered his city who's saying it back to him. Verse 1 says, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. But Jeremiah never delivers a prophecy in chapter 40. Nebuchadnezzar does. The pagan prophet. He sees what the Judahites refused to see. They have brought this on themselves and God has followed through on all of his threats he has done just as he said he would. Nebuchadnezzar invites Jeremiah to come with him to Babylon. That might have been a nice vacation. He was clearly being well treated but Jeremiah decides to stay with the people in the land verse 4 But today I Nebuzaradan am freeing you Jeremiah from the chains on your wrists come with me to Babylon if you like and I will look after you but if you do not want to then don't come look the whole country lies before you go wherever you please however before Jeremiah turned to go Nebuzaradan added Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people, or go anywhere else you please. Must have been amazingly freeing for Jeremiah for a change. After all these years of house arrest, cisterns, dungeons, at the hands of his own people, the sons of David. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah son of Ahikam at Mizpah and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. I'd like to stop the story there. But of course, that's not the end of the story either. Here's what happened next. Verse 7. When all the army of officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, as governor over the land and had put him in charge of the men, women, and children who were in the poorest in the land and who had not been carried into exile to Babylon, they came to Gedaliah at mizpah Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Yohanan and Jonathan, the sons of Kareah, Suriah, son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Netophathite and Jaazaniah, the son of the Maakathite, and their men. Some of those guys are going to be important in the next few chapters. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men, Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us, but you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you've taken over. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, and Edom, and all the other countries, these are kind of refugees, they've they've headed out, heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah to Gedaliah and Mizpah from all the countries where they've been scattered and they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Huh. Gedaliah seems to be about the best thing that could have happened to Judah at this time. They got peace and prosperity for a change. He's pulling together the various leaders from throughout the land who are left behind a remnant and instead of organizing them as an insurgency, he has encouraged them to settle down in the land, submit to Babylon, like Jeremiah said, and experience an abundant harvest. A little taste of shalom. And it's so good that people, like the, the folks from surrounding areas that had fled when they saw the trouble, kind of made their way back. But it doesn't last. It all falls apart. The leaders are not godly. And attack each other from within. And they have attacks from without as well. Verse 13. Yohanan, son of Kariah, and all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Don't you know that Baalis, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, to take your life? Both of these guys were named in verse 8. Yohanan has intel on Ishmael and gives a warning to Gedaliah. Verse 14. But Gedaliah, son of Hikam, did not believe them. Then Yohanan, son of Kariah, said privately to Gedaliah in Mizpah, let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? I think when you read that, you're supposed to read it kind of in a godfather kind of voice, right? This is like a mobster offering to take out a rival in the gang, right? Let me kill him, boss. Let me kill him, Okay. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Yohanan, son of Kareah, Don't do such a thing. What you're saying about Ishmael is not true. But sadly it was. Gedaliah was apparently too trusting. He didn't know what was in the heart of his men. And he paid for it. And so did all of Judah. Chapter 41, verse 1. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishamah, who was of royal blood and had been one of the king's officers, came with ten men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. While they were eating together there, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. That sounds like something out of the Godfather too, doesn't it? They're all sitting there eating their great big Italian feast, but here it's, of course, a Hebrew feast. And then one of them s- steps up, pulls out a gun, and starts shooting. It's an atrocity is what it is. A breach of hospitality, which is a grave offense in the Middle East. Ishmael also killed all the Jews who are with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. This is rebellion. This is flat-out rebellion. But then it gets worse. Verse 4. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes, and cut themselves came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. Now, what's going on at the house of the Lord at this time? Nothing. Right? It's been torn down. It's been burnt down. Solomon's temple is no more. And they're, and they're mourning this fact that there is no temple. That's why their offerings are bloodless. Right? That's why they're grain offerings. They're not bringing animals to sacrifice. They know there's no altar. That's why they're sad. They are lamenting. Eighty men come. Verse, eight, verse 6. Ishmael son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went, the big fake. When he met them, he said, Come to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom he's just killed the day before. When they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the men who were with him, slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. But ten of them said to Ishmael, Don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, oil and honey hidden in a field. So he let them alone and did not kill them with the others. So you can tell that Ishmael is no patriot. He's just a greedy, bloodthirsty rebel. Wishes he was king. He's probably of, the, of David's line somewhere along the way. Thinks he should have been tapped to be the king. Verse 9, Now the cistern where he threw all the bodies of the men who he had killed, along with Gedaliah, was the one King Asa had made as part of his defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, filled it with The dead. Ishmael made captives of all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, along with all the others who were left there, over whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites, who had apparently been funding this rebellion. Now, back into the scene comes Yohanan again. He's the one who had tried earlier to warn Gedaliah and asked if he could do the hit. He still wants to stop Ishmael. Verse 11. When Yohanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had committed, they took all their men and went out to fight Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael had with him saw Yohanan, son of Korea and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mizpah turned and went over to Yohanan, son of Korea. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped from Yohanan and fled to the Ammonites. Yohanan has won. But now what? What should they do next? They should probably ask Jeremiah, right? We haven't heard from him in a while. We haven't heard from Jeremiah in all of chapter 41. And he actually didn't say anything in chapter 40 was he killed was he one of the men buried in the cistern after all no he survived perhaps he was one of those that Yohanan had rescued there in chapter 41 we don't know we don't know because they don't ask him anything not yet not until next chapter and when they do, they don't listen. No, Joanan decides that the best thing to do is to head towards Egypt. He figures Nebuchadnezzar is going to hear about this rebellion in Judah. And even though it was Ishmael, not him, he's going to send some guys to stamp it out. And anybody with a sword is in trouble of reprisal. So he panics and runs to the south. Verse 16. Then Yohanan, son of Kariah, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the survivors from Mizpah, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after he had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had brought from Gibeon. I think that includes Jeremiah. And they went on stopping at Gareth Kimham near Bethlehem on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them. Because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Okay, that's three chapters. You've been thinking about application. What do you got? Obviously, we're still in the middle of the story of the end. There's more to come next week. But what points of application do you already have in your mind? as you've been listening to this story. For me, the key thing here is what Nebuchadnezzar said to Jeremiah. That pagan guy really knew what was up. The Lord your God has decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. Here are four points of application to consider. One, two, three, four. Number one, Repent. Now Buzaradon said, all this happened because your people sinned against the Lord and did not obey Him. The pagan said that. Jeremiah's been saying it for 40 years. How often did he call them, invite them, implore them, plead with them to shuv, return, Come. Back. Repent. All this could have been avoided if they had listened and turned around while there was still time. Seeing the smoldering ruin of Jerusalem should make every person stop and consider the direction of their lives. We tend to assume that God will not keep his threats. We tend to assume that his patience is weakness, that his long-sufferingness is ambivalence. We tend to think that we're not so bad and he's not so mad. But the fall of Jerusalem should remind us of the holiness of God. He has done just as he said he would tremble take his threat seriously. Are you harboring unconfessed sin in your life? Are you refusing to repent? Are you running from God? Hear his inviting call to come to him. Turn while you can. He wants you back. But don't assume that he won't do everything he said he would do to the unrepentant, including judgment. Come to Jesus for cleansing. Turn from your sin and trust in the Savior and what he did on the cross. He took your sins and your sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Repent and put your faith and trust in the Savior's love for you. Come to Jesus for cleansing. Come back to him. Confess your hidden sins. Repent of those things you don't want to let go of. He is faithful and just and will forgive all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But do not presume upon his mercy. Come and receive it. Repent. Number two. Lament. He has done just as he said he would. And that led Jeremiah and all of the remnant into lamentation. When they surveyed the destruction of their beloved city, when they looked at the empty streets, when they saw the smoke, when they looked where the walls used to be, when they saw the people who were dead buried in the cistern, when they remembered Jerusalem, when they're out in exile... They sang songs of sadness and sorrow. And to the degree that we see God carrying out his threats and bringing his painful discipline into our world, we can lament as well. It's right and good to weep over sin and sorrow and suffering. Even if the suffering is warranted. Even if someone had it coming. It's okay to weep over the consequences and the collateral damage. I confess that I just kind of shake my head as I read these chapters about Gedaliah and Ishmael and Yohanan. They show up at the end. They make all kinds of mistakes that affect other people. And then they go and die and disappear off the scene. So much chaos. It didn't have to be this way. And it's right that God brought this chaos as a judgment on the people because of their sin. They broke the covenant. But we don't have to be all happy about it. don't have to rub our hands with glee it's okay to cry we can weep over the consequences even when we see that they are just there are probably people in your life right now who are suffering from self-inflicted pain people you love suffering from self-inflicted pain they've sowed the wind and they're reaping the whirlwind And the tornado is wrecking the lives of the people around them. It's okay to hurt for them. And not just for the people that they have hurt, but even how they are hurting themselves. Our Lord Jesus wept over this same city, rebuilt city, several hundred years later. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He's weeping over the city that he's going to destroy in 70 AD. Lament. It's right. Number three, depend. In all of this, in all this sadness, don't forget Ebed-Melech. He only had a few short verses, but they were great ones. Don't forget that the Lord always keeps for himself a remnant who trust and obey. Remember that Ebed-Melech was like that tree from Jeremiah 17. He put his faith and confidence in the Lord and was rescued. He rescued Jeremiah and the Lord rescued him. In in verse 18 of chapter 39, he said to Ebed-Melech, I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Trust and obey. That's the way, right? Trust and obey. He has done just as he said he would. So we should too. We should put our faith and trust in him and then do what he asks us to do. What is he asking you to do these days? We may be in the book of failures but there are still profiles of courage even in these dark chapters. Ebed Melech stepped out in faith and rescued Jeremiah from the mud. You and I can step out in faith and do whatever God has called us to do as well. Perhaps there's someone you need to invite to the wild game dinner in just a month. While Jamie was up here talking you thought of who you might give a ticket to. Or maybe you thought I could do that, that thing Jamie said and that list of things that still need done. Or maybe you thought, I need to flat out talk to that one guy about Jesus. Or maybe you thought, fill in the blank. Trust and obey. Depend on God and then encourage, do what he says. And fourth and last, rejoice. Rejoice. Because he has done just as he said he would. I know it's scary because of what he said he was going to do. But if he will keep all of his threats to do what is bad, how much more will he keep all of his promises to do what is good? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Nebuzaradan might not have believed that one, but we do. We believe that he will do just as he said he would. Amen.